Hi, this is Steve. As you know, each week on The Cinephiles, we do a deep dive into a single great film. However, for the first film of 2018, we are tackling something so important, so influential, and so incredibly dense with history, technique, and just plain great stories that John and I felt that one episode simply wasn't enough. In fact, we didn't think two episodes were enough, or even three. Instead, we decided that the only way to do this film justice is to devote four episodes, an entire month of the cinephiles, to the movie many believe to be the greatest ever made. That's right, the cinephiles is finally digging in to Citizen Kane. Made by 24-year-old Orson Welles in 1941, Citizen Kane is one of the most studied movies in film history, and the stories behind the scenes of this masterpiece are as fascinating as the ones that play out on screen. Now, normally, we like to give a brief bio of the people behind whatever film we explore, but in the case of Orson Welles, brief just isn't going to cut it. Welles is a brilliant, frustrating, endlessly fascinating character whose talent and personality loom over the film world like few others. And both John and I have had a lifelong obsession with him. So for our first episode in what we're calling the month of Cain, John and I explore the life, art, triumphs, failures, excesses, and illusions of the great Orson Welles. In the following two weeks, our exploration of Kane continues with not one, but two big episodes breaking down the film. And finally, we decided to finish the month with the cinephile's first ever commentary track. As always, you can buy Kane or any other film we've talked about on the show at our website, cinephiles.net. So that's Citizen Kane all this month on the cinephiles, starting this Friday with our conversation about a man who was both one of the greatest artists and greatest charlatans of all time, Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates. By tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor on Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist. Uh, host, writer, producer over at Collider and uh, on a number of other shows. Uh, so, yeah, and occasionally an actor. And normally I say that each week we enter in the world of a great film, but that is not what we're doing this week. No. We are doing something a little different. And the reason we're doing something different is that we have finally decided to tackle the mountain that is Citizen Kane. Dun, dun, dun. This is something we talked about it from the day we started mm-hmm. uh, talking about the cinephiles. And I think I, more than you, was like, no, no, let's, we got to wait. Yes. Let's get some time in. <laughs> it's a lot. And, and in the last few weeks, we've been talking about, well, how do we want to approach this? And, and I think both of us felt that we had to approach this differently from anything else we've done. Because Citizen Kane is 
almost universally ranked as among, if not the greatest film ever made. Yeah, and if people want to know, uh, kind of get a window or a look behind the curtain of our friendship, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane oh, is yeah. one of the building blocks of our friendship because when we were first getting to know each other, it was one of the first movies that we discussed and talked about and found a common connection and kinship Absolutely. with uh, because of our love of the film. And so here's what we decided to do. Today, we are not going to talk about Citizen Kane. Okay. And what we're going to talk about is the great Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. You know, normally uh, when we introduce a new director, a new actor, we will sometimes go into some biographical material. And Orson Welles's story is so big yeah. that we felt like, you know what, let's just talk about Orson today and then in our next episode we're actually going to break down citizen kane that might go over two episodes depending probably, on probably. depending on how long it goes and then we've decided to do something which we talked about quite a bit which is we're going to do a commentary track on the entire movie yeah so this might be oh. the next whole month is going to be citizen kane yeah and, and I, I feel that it's worth it and, think, yeah except and for those of you who've said like listening to your podcast is almost like a film school a pseudo film school this is in essence like doing a particular section of the of the right. syllabus we're going to spend right. on Citizen Kane. And because it is a film that needs to be analyzed and understood, and for those of you who've seen it before and love it, great. For those of you who've been maybe waiting to watch it, a reason to watch it, now is your time. And for those of you who maybe don't think it's that greatest film, maybe you'll give us a little bit of leeway here to convince you to look at it in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Uh Without further further ado, let's talk about the great Orson Welles. Yeah. Do you remember what your first knowledge of Orson Welles is? Like, where did you first discover this name, this person? I probably remember reading something about him as I was getting into film in my teenage years and something about Citizen Kane. And I remember because I would get, like, Premiere Magazine or I would get whatever the film magazines were in the bookstore. Like, I would stand mm. in the book. I was one of those a-holes who would stand in the bookstore right. and read because I couldn't afford it. We were very poor growing up. I didn't have money to buy magazine, movie magazines. Right. And some of them were imported from England, so they were, like, right. you know, double, double the price or whatever. So it's very difficult. So I would stand and read, you know. And so I remember... I remember getting into film, loving film at a young age, and like I would just, I was voracious in my reading of like, what do I look at next? What do I watch next? And Orson Welles was a name that popped up over and over again because it just kind of hit all the buttons for me, all the, it checked all the boxes for me. A, he's a Shakespeare guy, he's a right. theater guy, right. a voiceover radio guy, and then boom, uh, he was a film director. And, uh, and then I remember renting the film from Video World one day when I was sick took it home, watched it uh, with a couple of other films as well, and that film uh, absolutely devastated me in the world. Like, it's like when you see that scene in, in uh, Godfather, The Godfather, when uh, Michael Corleone, Al Pacino, sees Apollonia for the first time in that Italian mm. village, that's what it was like for me to watch the film. Wow. I was like, I have no idea what I just watched, but it's changed my life. I knew immediately, yeah. instinctively, organically, that it had changed my life, right. and I have never gotten enough of Orson Welles ever since. Um, yeah, it's funny. So my my first experience with Orson is completely bizarre. Okay. So uh, when I was a kid, I was a comic book collector, oh, and my dad would bring home Superman comics. And at one point, I think it was for my ninth or tenth birthday, he brought home a big book that was a compilation. It was Superman from the 30s to the 70s. Mm -hmm. And I still have it. And uh, and so and it starts with Action Comics number one and goes through right. like these are the best 
you know, uh, issues of Superman of the year. And in one of them, which was in like 1940, Superman meets up with this radio star, Orson Welles. What? Yes. And that, and it's right after War of the Worlds had happened. And that Superman, everyone thought that Orson Welles was lying about this big thing that was happening. And in fact, it was the truth. And so it's a Superman Orson Welles adventure. (laughs) And then the next place that I found out about him. When can we get that green lit? I know, right? Um, so I so I saw, okay, there's this guy who's this actor. That's all I knew about him when I'm 10 or 11 or something. And then uh, it's funny that now I love audiobooks. Well, the beginning of that love was I used to listen to old radio shows. Mm-hmm. So I would go to the library in junior high, and I would check out these albums, you know, big albums, and I would listen to The Green Hornet and Burton's and Allen and uh, You Bet Your Life and all these shows, including The Shadow and I Heard War of the Worlds. Oh, wow. So I heard both of those probably at 12 or 13, and that's how I knew who Orson Welles was and then and then of course growing up when we did you saw him places yes it was on the Merv Griffin show or he's in the Muppet movie or all these places that I had seen and so I'd seen this guy so maybe I need to adjust that that was probably my first exposure to him but I couldn't I didn't understand who he was well how could you right how could 10 11 12 and then it wasn't till I think I was in college probably 19 or 20 Mm. that I did exactly what you did is I watched Citizen Kane and I remember just being I, I I don't think I could reckon with it the first time I saw mm-hmm. it. You know, it, it takes it takes a while. Mm-hmm. I knew it was something really important and totally. And the thing, and we'll talk about this when we talk more about the movie. I believe that while it is a, it is both one of the most influential films at all time, and also there's nothing like it. Yeah, you know that's absolutely. A, yeah, the, it, it's completely its own thing. Yep, and has influenced so many other films afterwards. Yeah, right? yeah. So Orson was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He had affluent parents. But it doesn't sound like things were so good for him. No. No. His parents split up. His dad was an alcoholic. His uh, mom, uh, he was with his mom. Uh, she played piano. He learned piano. And one of the things we're going to find out about Orson Welles is that that he tells all sorts of stories about himself that may or may not be true. <laughs> it's very hard to figure out. He's a trickster yeah. and a magician and an illusionist. And almost all the time, his stories are better than what the reality is. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and rightly so. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a storyteller, master storyteller, why shouldn't he create incredible yarns about himself? So he yeah. says he was well on his way to being a concert pianist. <laughs> and that he would have been one of the great pianists of all time. Of course, yeah. But then when his mother died, which she died when he was 10 or something, very young, he never played piano again. Right. Yeah. Now, is that true? I don't, I don't really know. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he ends up at a place called uh, the Todd School. Well, at first he traveled around the world with his dad. Yeah. And so he was in Morocco. He was in Spain. He was in Hong Kong with his father as a young kid living a very, very strange life with his sort of alcoholic, sounds like fairly mm-hmm. tough dad. And he was incredible. But he was intelligent from the beginning. He was a genius. No question about it. From birth. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and it's interesting, uh, they moved to Chicago and his dad was living with a guy named Maurice Bernstein. Mm. And I just think that name Bernstein is, mm-hmm. this is a really important time person in his life. Sure. Um, and he ends up at the Todd school for boys and I picture this Orson Welles at the Todd school. This is Rushmore. He's Max. Yeah. Because he was doing plays. They just basically went, we can't control this person. We're going to let him do whatever he wants. He, there was a radio station at the Todd School, so he started doing his first radio plays. Right. It sounds like he ran the school. And in particular, this guy named Roger Hill, who was his real mentor. Okay. And at 15, he told his dad, I will never see you again unless you stop drinking. Wow. And his dad did not stop drinking. 
and his dad died at, oh. when Orson was 15. Wow. And he asked Roger Hill, his mentor, this great teacher at the Todd School, mm -hmm. can you, will you be my guardian? And he said no. And so Maurice Bernstein, his father, the guy his father lived with, uh, that became his uh, his guardian. How interesting. Yeah, he is it, his his childhood and his life is like nobody else. Nobody yeah. lived a life like like Orson Welles. Well, most geniuses are this way, right? Mozart was this way. And yeah. had such an interesting life, you know, overbearing father, took him everywhere, like it says in the movie, like a dancing monkey to right. perform for everything. But he was incredibly intelligent about the music, you know. This sounds to me like Orson was very self-aware or self-actualized at a very young age. Well, and I think it sounds like he was, no one controlled him, mm -hmm. you know. He just did what he was going to do. And, I, and what's, it, what's interesting, too, and this is something we'll get to as we get, when we talk about Citizen Kane, yeah. is... He he seems like a person who was in a lot of pain, yeah, and was covering up a lot of that pain with a lot of arrogance and bluster and all sorts of stuff. Um, at sixteen, he, when he graduated from the Todd School, he gets accepted to Harvard at sixteen, refuses at sixteen, yep, and decides instead to travel around Europe on a donkey cart to practice his painting. <laughs> and this is true. I mean, this is really this is true. Okay. This is true. All right. Now, of course, Orson says he would have been one of the great painters. Of course. Um, <laughs> and he ends up, and, and how much money he had, and how was he doing this, and how was he living, we don't really know. Um, he ends up at the, at the Gate Theater in Dublin, walks into the theater and says, I am the great Orson Welles. I have been on stage across the world. I have been on Broadway, on the London stage. You should put me in your theater. And they go, and what... And he says they totally believed him. Mm -hmm. And they say, the two guys who ran the Gate Theater said, we didn't believe him at all, but he was so fascinating that we hired him. And that's how he started his acting career. Why not? At like 17 or something in Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, he acts there for a while, um, acts down in London, and uh, then he returns to the U.S. And, um, and, in the US, and again, this guy's kind of just drifting around. And he's only 18. Was experiencing point. the world. Yeah. Right? This is going to influence all his work afterwards. But this is him experiencing the world. Yeah. You know, most people don't leave more than, you know, a few blocks down the street for a majority of their lives until they get until they become adults and can afford to travel the world. This man was traveling since he was a baby. And yeah. so that's incredible. Or a child, rather. That's incredible. And that changes your perspective on everything and how you approach any interaction, I imagine. And I think the fundamental thing with him is he does not see rules. Right. He doesn't go, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. <sighs> right. He goes, I want to do this. That's I what, will go do this. This will begin the, the main pillar of his tragedy. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. The pillar of his tragedy. Mm -hmm. Because this is what's so sad. I mean, this is such a sad story. Mm -hmm. and, and it is at once he is unbelievably lucky, unbelievably unlucky unbelievably brilliant and creates these amazing amazing things and unbelievably self-destructive yes and it just it's all wrapped up in one crazy person yeah and just plain destructive yeah yeah, yeah. he meets thornton wilder and thornton wilder says this is the most interesting person i've ever met and i <laughs> and so he gets him in touch with a theater company ends up in a repertory company in new york and very quickly goes to uh acting on broadway yeah what a surprise yeah just like that yeah. i mean really really fast and at the same time he starts doing radio and this is, again, this other thing we're going to see from Orson. Mm. He is never going to do just one thing. Yeah. He's going to be doing three or four things at the same time all the time. Sounds familiar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and he's acting in Romeo and Juliet on Broadway. I think he's playing Tybalt. Yeah. And John Houseman sees him and goes, who is this guy? 
Who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wells. <laughs> Mr. Wells. Um, and he becomes one of the while he's doing theater, he becomes one of the biggest stars on radio. Yeah. And it's not just that he's doing the shadow, which he did, but he's doing narration over here and an old man over here and a young kid over here and playing Romeo and playing every he doesn't even know. He literally would show up mm-hmm. and they would just hand him a script. He doesn't know what he's playing that day, and that's what he'd start doing. Well, the gifted ones can do that. You know, and having done my show Cast of Characters and then uh the show I did after with Yuri over at Geek and Sundry, mm-hmm. interviewing the great voiceover actors. The great voiceover actors can be handed a piece the the right before they walk into a booth and are immediately creating a character as they're walking, wow. as they're looking, before they put the paper down and as they start, immediately they create like ten different characters, ten different directions they can go in. And the great ones can do that because their imagination is endless. And I imagine the same thing was true for Wells. And if you watch that documentary that's on the Citizen Kane Blu-ray, right. uh, when they talk about, which is one of the greatest documentaries we've ever seen it's about fantastic. him, it's a ninety minutes or an hour and forty-five minutes. But he talks about the fact that he had an ambulance on call for him in New York the whole time I was doing radio. So because it was it wasn't illegal to hire an ambulance to take you from radio booth to radio booth with the ambulance and the siren going, so you wouldn't sit in traffic and you wouldn't have to wait through a taxi. The the ambulance would take you from place to place. And at that time, it wasn't legal. You know why? Because no one would think to do something yep. ter- terrible like that but orson in his narcissism had no problem doing that and so this is the exchange for the greatness yeah he, he doesn't care about rules does not yeah he would go and he at this point the federal theater project had started and uh he would he was working on uh voodoo macbeth which yes. was an all african-american cast of mm-hmm. macbeth set in the caribbean uh that it was they were doing it up in harlem yeah Nothing had ever been done like this before. And and there is footage of that in the documentary. Yeah. And this is what's revolutionary too, Steve. The Federal Theater, we should talk about that. The Federal Theater Project was a thing initiated by FDR, part of the New Deal of Franklin Delano Roosevelt to get the arts moving, to get the to fund projects to do the arts. You know, if you see if you see the movie Cradle Will Rock, that's right, kind of right. loose, loose interpretation of what happened with this thing. But yeah, the Federal Theater Project was to initiate arts and and, and Wells took advantage. Again, here's a situation he takes advantage right. of getting this money, creating this thing. And this what we're talking about, 1930s. An all-black production on Broadway. Up uh, in Harlem, actually. Uh, Harlem, sorry, Broadway, uh, yeah. Harlem of, of Macbeth. Done in a voodoo style. It is as revolutionary as you could imagine it being in the 1930s. Yeah. And, and the guts to do it in his, a kid in his 20s. Yeah, he's like 21, 22. Insanity. It's it's crazy. And, 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 and by the way, one thing is like, did he take advantage and get money from the government to make this? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the government, I mean, part of what was happening with the Federal Theater Project was just as they were looking at out-of-work coal miners or out-of-work factory workers, yeah. they were looking at out-of-work actors and writers, exactly. and they're trying to help them out. But Orson is also doing a thing that he did throughout his career, which is if the play was running out of money, he paid for it out of his own pocket. Yes. Over and over again. Very true. Is that he just, there was no sense of self-preservation. He was just, you know, just, we need to do this. Here's some money. And that's the next pillar. Yeah, it's yeah. another pillar. Um, and uh, and this play is a huge, phenomenal success. Mm-hmm. And one thing, if you've gone to see Shakespeare uh, today, you will frequently see Hamlet set in a Nazi concentration sure. camp or, or uh, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream with punk rockers or 
that all starts with Voodoo Macbeth. Yeah. Like Orson Welles is the first person to really go, we can take this source material and do it anywhere. He goes on to do Julius Caesar uh, among like in a fascist society, which is supposed to be an unbelievable production. Yeah. And in terms of lighting, you see a lot of the stuff that we would later see in Citizen Kane. It's a prescient production because it's also some of the stuff we would see used by Hitler. And and Lenny Riefenstahl yeah. to promote because this is 1938. 1938. Hitler isn't even yeah. like doesn't understand yet fully how to use right. propaganda and the lights and the presentation of the wow, speeches. I never thought of it this way. Before. Yes, yeah. I mean, this is Wells kind of showing mapping, and Wells is talking about Hitler. He said this on numerous occasions. They knew what Hitler was doing in Germany was terrible. They had heard from their friends who were Jewish what was happening in Germany. So that's what influenced him creating this version. Because if you if you see some of the pictures which are available in any of the history books about this production of Julius Caesar, Wells did, you see the lights come from from below. In, and they're not they're like small singular circular lights that light up so that yeah. the person seems even darker and more powerful and more brooding the coats are darker and longer the boots are there everything about that production is supposed to be the harbinger for what he thinks is going to happen in Europe for Hitler that's how intelligent right. this man was nobody listened and we got into World War right. II. And at the same time he's doing this, he's founding the Mercury Theater yes. with John Hausman and the Mercury Theater on the air, which is this weekly radio show, uh, which I've listened to a ton of them. Me too, brother. They're awesome. They're incredible. I mean, they're dated sometimes. Sure, the sure, sound sure. quality is bad. But listening to him put Les Miserables into a one-hour radio show yeah. or Heart of Darkness or all of these. Or Edgar Allan put the Telltale Heart. Oh, the Telltale Heart. He does, yeah. I mean, because he layered, had sound design and music, now working with Bernard Herrmann. Yes. People like Joe of Cotton and George Kalouris. Vincent Price was part of the uh, original Mercury Theater on the wow. air. And they have these great actors, great music, great sound design, great scripts. And every week they're doing a classic Tale of Two Cities. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's really remarkable. And he's doing this while starring on Broadway in one play, directing on another play, yeah. doing The Shadow. I mean, it's crazy. And on his three days after his 23rd birthday, his picture is on cover of Time magazine. I mean, 23 years old, 23 years old. Yeah. And then he does War of the Worlds, Roar of the Worlds. Yeah. Um, By the way, he was a voracious eater as well. He would eat three or four meals, uh, three or four dinners, yeah. three or four dinners at a at night. And this is to fuel his energy. Well, you know, in the seven deadly sins, I think we can put gluttony <laughs> and Orson Welles together. <laughs> yeah, sure. And probably some uh, some other of the yeah, sins in there, too. Probably quite a few. Well, and he would do this constant <laughs> thing of like he would put on weight and he would booze and eat and right. then he would with diet pills and crash diets take yeah. it off and you know i mean as a guy who struggled with some of these things myself i i, I get it you both of us have. and uh as a young man you can do that when you get older it's a lot harder well that's exactly what we see in orson <laughs> wells yeah uh war of the worlds which i'm sure everyone has heard about that is uh from the hg wells book but it was done as like a real thing happening in real time mm-hmm. and people who did not hear the beginning of it where he said, we're going to do H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, just thought Martians were invading. Yeah. And there was a panic. Now, how big this panic really was, mm, it's hard to know. It's enough that we still talk about it in 2017. Yeah. That's for sure. The legend of it, at least. Yeah. And if you listen to it, it is really well done. It, it cuts in. Yeah. As if a regular broadcast is happening, it cuts in, and then it begins this whole thing of this person on the ground talking about what's happening the martians you hear the screams and all this kind of the sound effects is fantastic it's really well and he never says by when it's over that you've been listening to the mercury theater production of war of the world he he does at the very very end okay okay. it's like some of you he comes on the air because they'd heard about the panic and he does say oh right right because the panic was happening as they were recording yeah that's right he says i hope you enjoyed our little halloween 
gift to you. Um, um, and of course, at this point, he's one of the most famous people in America, so much so that they put him in a comic book with Superman that I yeah. read. Uh, and RKO, who is one of the smaller studios, invites him out and gives him this unprecedented thing, which is a two-picture, total artistic control deal to do whatever he wants. It's difficult to get the final cut nowadays. Yeah. Can you imagine when there were less studios and more control from the studio heads of things, and they were giving him complete final cut on two yeah. films? Um yeah, no one had it. Right. And and we're going to go deep, deep into Citizen Kane. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I want to skip ahead a little bit, but I want to say, I want to say just this one thing, which is that one of the things we'll talk about yeah. as we talk about Kane is that he made this movie loosely based on William Randolph Hearst, one of the most powerful newspaper media people in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is part of what destroyed his career. Yes. Is that coming out of Kane, a movie that almost didn't even come out in the theaters, was almost destroyed before anyone saw it. Uh, he suddenly is tarnished mm -hmm. you know there was all this hatred of him when he came to hollywood as the boy genius it's jealous yeah well and i get it too if you've been like if you're you know if sure. someone comes on shows up and someone just hands him mm -hmm. you know someone showed up at collider who's 21 yeah and they handed them the top spot and all you would not be pleased about it i would not but if they were kicking ass while they were doing it sure. i'd be like shit i guess that's made yeah. sense yeah. i'd be mad yeah, sure, I'd be mad, but I'd also be like, well, they're fucking great. What can I say? Well, and there's no question that Orson was. Yeah. But, but, John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. So he goes off to make his second film. Which well, you know what's in, well, sorry, sorry, Steve. You know what's interesting? His granddaughter, Hearst's granddaughter, it just married Chris Hardwick from The Nerdist. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, no idea. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I knew that Chris, I didn't know that's who he married. That's fascinating. Um, so I'm just contemplating the, the, interesting little geeky the, the world. meld of one of the, of the modern podcasting empire with yeah. the 50, 70 years ago newspaper empire. That's sort of fascinating. Um, he goes off to make Magnificent Ambersons based on the Booth Tarkington book, which he hung out with Booth Tarkington, was a friend of the family as a kid. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amazing. And this is one of the first of many just tragic stories. Yep. Tragic, self-destructive stories. Film's an incredible film. Then for, for some stupid-ass reason, just leaves, goes to Brazil to shoot this thing for Roosevelt and does not... And 
sends in notes on how to edit the film instead of being there to watch the editing process. This is this is where if you listen to Orson's story, yeah, and you go like, well, how much truth is this? Because he has a really good explanation. Sure, you know, is but he went he films this film. Uh, Robert Wise is editing. They finish a rough mm-hmm. cut, and then uh, Roosevelt had asked him to go, as you said, to Brazil. It's the middle of World War Two, and this is part of our hemisphere cooperation deal and he's going to make this movie called it's all true right. and it's all true uh, which there's a documentary on it you have you seen it i assume yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's also really good mm-hmm. it's all true was supposed to be about latin american uh three latin american stories one of which was a story in mexico that he was not directing mm-hmm. one was a documentary about samba and yeah. and carnival in rio and the other one was a recreation of a uh, a basically a journey on a rat on raft by these native fishermen who are the the jangadieros. I think is I probably pronounced that terribly. I'm sure you did it right. Um, <laughs> sure, <laughs> jangadieros. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, anyway, they they had this is for real that to protest uh, the policies of Brazil, they had sailed like 1,400 miles on an open raft to go into Rio Harbor. Wow. And so he wants to recreate this journey with the actual guys, the actual fishermen who yeah. did it. The real people. So he's down in Brazil. Robert Wise is cutting Ambersons. They send him a cut of Ambersons, which he hates. He sends notes back, but he doesn't come back. Everyone in Hollywood thinks he's just partying and getting drunk in Carnival. Right. Which probably to some degree he is. He sends them a bunch of color footage with no sync sound of Carnival. And the studio heads see it. And their response to it, and I will not use the language that they used, is... This is a bunch of N-words dancing. What is all this stuff? Whoa. So they go, we got to, they take all the money away from Orson. Mm -hmm. They say, we don't trust you. You can't be doing this. In the meantime, and this is what Orson says, but part of this, I know he's re he's filming this thing with the Jangadieros Mm -hmm. as they, and the first thing he films is the end, which is their arrival in Rio Harbor. Mm -hmm. And he has these four guys who really made this journey who are these native fishermen from way up north. And he films them coming into the harbor, and there's a big wave from like a big ship that goes by, knocks them off the boat. One of the men, who's the leader, hits his head and drowns. Wow. Dies. Holy crap. So Orson goes, a man died filming this film. I have to stay and continue making the film. This is what his story is. Mm -hmm. So he goes up, and all he can get from the studio is a 30-year-old silent film black and white camera. Yeah. So he and two or three other guys go up to 1,400 miles to this location and just start filming stuff to film this story because he feels he has to honor this guy who died to complete the film. Mm-hmm. And that is why he does not come back to Ambersons. You look okay. skeptical. Of course I'm skeptical because I think Orson was the kind of guy who would talk himself or talk him talk himself into or out of anything and he's one of those people you meet in life and i've met them i've met these people in life that will create any excuse or reason find right. and f- find a sanctimonious excuse or reason that makes them seem like the hero and they're the victim to the power or the elite or whatever the whatever it is that they are currently claiming is abusing them or not understanding them I've seen this happen so many times with people who are narcissists. It's how they exist. They create the enemy, then they create the nobility within themselves for what they were doing. If a man died, 
maybe, and, and I guarantee you, he didn't check the waves, didn't check to see what could have happened, didn't check the ship was coming, didn't do any of right. that because that's what the wave. He's not a responsible person. Right. He's not a responsible person. He just wants to shoot. And this idea of, so it, by covering it, by saying, oh, no, I have to finish this film. Bullshit. Your first commitment was to finish Ambersons, and you should have gone up there and finished it. But the truth was, I think, I think he was afraid to finish it because he was afraid he might not reach the levels that he reached with Citizen Kane. So he copped out. Well, and. And this is why I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think we can never really know. No, of course not. But, but the reason I agree is that if you look at the rest of his life, he is continually not finishing yes. and running away from or obsessively not completing projects over and over again. So Insane. like if this was a one-time thing, I would go, I would be totally on Orson's side. But because right. it's not, and we see it with Touch of Evil, we see it with uh, uh, Other Side of the Wind, with all these other projects yeah. over and over again. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Right. And while he's away, the studio cuts out 60 minutes or something of Ambersons, shoots a new happy ending, and releases like a 90-minute version. And what's really tragic is that is gone. That footage is gone. No one there, there's the 60 always minutes, this, right. Yeah. We will never ever see what Orson's vision of that film is. No, there but there is the but the 60 minutes have been like transcribed or there's whatever. A script. There's, there's a script, script exactly. So you could see it. But even with the cut, it was still considered a fantastic film. I, I really like him. There are things in Ambersons that are just amazing. Yes, the, a lot of those dinner table scenes are like phenomenal. Yeah, it, it, it's a fa- and and, from, and what Orson says is that the combination of it's all true and Ambersons broke him. That's what he says. Yeah. He says when he came to Hollywood to do Citizen Kane, he believed he could do anything. Right, and from this point forward, he didn't. Right, but this is also a man that was not sitting around wallowing in his own pity. Oh this no, this man was. Uh, 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 romancing half of Hollywood, eating, drinking, enjoying the life and luxury of being a star, of being pampered, of being... I mean, like you said, we're going to get into it, but the battles he had with Mankiewicz about Kane, all of that is, there's a a certain uh, 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 part of his personality that feels he deserves all these accolades, deserves the ability to do all these things that he's doing. And then, of course, oh, I, I broke me. All of this broke me. Well, it didn't break you when you were, you know, sleeping around. It didn't break you when you were drinking like crazy and having all this kind of jazz. So Wait, you're saying I the wonder- people that are obsessively having sex and drinking too much aren't broken? <laughs> no, I'm saying... I'm saying don't don't give me the poor me attitude if you're off having fun every night. Sure. Well, and... He, this guy's a workaholic. I mean, yes. what we should say is that it's not that he's ever lazy. No. Because as soon as he comes back, he is doing radio shows. He raised huge amounts of money for war bonds. Mm-hmm. He's traveling all over. I mean, the guy is working and working. He does Journey into Fear. Yeah. He does, he, he is never, never stops working no, through his whole life. Shows, does magic shows. Magic shows. Yeah, yeah. All that. Um, he goes to make his next Hollywood movie is The Stranger. Yes. Um, which I find to be a mixed film. Yeah. I think it's a. I think it's a precursor for what we're going to see yeah. from a number of his films going forward. And this is a movie where he thought he, he was like, "I'm going to just finish this on time and under budget," and which he does. Yeah. But then the movie gets taken out of his hands and edited in a way he doesn't like. Um. He the next one he does is uh, Lady from Shanghai, mm. which has great stuff in it, including yeah. probably the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable scenes ever shot, yeah. which is the uh, Hall of Mirrors scene at the climax. Yeah, with Everett Sloan, yeah. With Everett Sloan, who's great. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Rita Hayworth. By, this is used by one of your heroes, Bruce Lee, in uh, in Enter the Dragon. That's right. That's right. Um, and really, to be frank, the Bruce Lee one does not compare <laughs> well, no, to no, what Orson true, does. True. Um, and, and it's with his then wife, Rita Hayworth. Yes. Um, and uh, and again, this is a movie that is taken out of his hands. And that and he he this is the end of his time in Hollywood, really. He makes Macbeth next. Mm-hmm. 
And this is what we're going to see. And I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, most of the Orson Welles movies, other than Kane, are always kind of watching a movie with an asterisk. Mm-hmm. It's always like, look at this brilliant thing. Oh, yeah, he probably didn't, wasn't able to do that the way he wanted. Right. To me, it's Kane, Touch of Evil. Right. And then everything else is a middling, uh, middling, to, gr- middling to good film and sometimes not so good and i think we can't uh go past lady from shanghai without mentioning the fact that he drove rita insane and yeah he did and the part of the reasons why he got uh excommunicated in hollywood was he took one of their great stars in rita hayworth seduced her married her blonde cut her hair which is what she was known for for right. gilda and everything then put her blonde the studio head went insane. Right. I forget if it was Roy Cohn or somebody, but like went insane. I think so, because it's Columbia. Yeah, yeah you're right. So he was so upset at what he'd done. And this was Wells' way of exerting his power, using this woman as a battlefield for his war with Hollywood. And this yeah. is what he does constantly. Uses people, abuses people, steps on them, hurts them. You can still revere this man, incredible talent. I do. I idolize him at times, but you can't remove the flaws of a man like this, the greatness of him because of his narcissism. He did not see people 100% as they were, he saw them as things he could use or abuse or, you know, or or go to and beg sympathy for or care for. And Rita was one of those people who really got sacrificed to Shank. She was really destroyed by that relationship. And you read about it in numerous, right. yeah. numerous uh, uh, accounts of her life. Well, and this is the thing we have to remember about this guy. And you see a lot of this in Citizen Kane. Yes. Is he is the most, one of the most charismatic, charming, intelligent, talented, mm-hmm. you know, huge personality persuasive powerful people that you could ever meet and he left a lot of broken stuff in his wake mm-hmm. you know and, it, and it's like and I, I i've been around some people like this not at the orson wells level right but i've been around some people like this and it's like how do you deal with them mm-hmm. you know they're gonna do what they're gonna do oh yeah um irrelevant of how you feel yeah yeah, but uh, I agree with you about to go back to the movies thing that you said, Steve. Yeah, for me, this is the problem I have with Wells, especially with Lady from Shanghai. There's, there's some of those close-ups are really un- useless, and I don't know why people like them. They're terrible to me, and they take me out of the movie, and then some of the other shots are amazing. Same thing with Macbeth. Macbeth and this is what we start to see, too, with his films. He takes longer to finish these films right. because money runs out. He has to go do these other parts, which are beneath him as an actor, talent-wise, but he does them to fund, his, uh, to fund these films so he can finish finish these films so it is a constant cycle for him yeah well like with othello which is what he makes next he Mm. takes two plus years to make yeah and he films it in uh in in europe in italy in africa and he would there were times where he would leave his cast because he ran out of money like in a hotel in africa fly back to the united states do a couple of parts in in a movie do a few radio ads do a commercial a tv spot and then come back get them out of the hotel in order to keep filming there are scenes there are scenes in Othello where one side of a conversation yes. is shot in Italy and the other side of the conversation was shot a year later in Africa. Yeah. I mean, the and, and it shows. And again, Othello is a movie where I go, there are moments where I'm like, this is the most gorgeous shot I've ever seen. Right. This performance, this moment, this thing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is just, I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, but none of them for me, Othello or Macbeth, of the Shakespeare stuff come close to Chimes at Midnight. Chimes at Midnight is the one that I think is the closest he ever came to Citizen Kane. And that's one of the ones I revere greatly. But yes, Macbeth and Othello issues all over the place with some of it. But but when he gets those quiet moments, it's really great. Like the scene with Desdemona, the scenes with Desdemona are fantastic. Are fantastic. So you know he's a master filmmaker. He's just hamstrung by his own shit and by money. Can I make a horrible confession to you? Yes. 
I haven't seen Chimes at Midnight. What? I know. Steve, you can take my Blu-ray home. I have it. No, I, I bought it. I bought uh, it, the Criterion one, in the oh, last sale. Okay. And I've been kind of going like, I assume we're going to do it at some time. I know that you love it. I've been meaning to watch it forever. You're driving me insane. I did <laughs> not know. Uh, you've caused a fracture in our Wells friendship right now. I did not know you'd never seen that one. Brother, when they reissued that, I went to see that at the John Kennedy Performing Arts Center in D.C. Wow. I drove myself down there like early 92, 93, 94. You sat in bleachers in a room and they showed you the film the prints of the film that had been just discovered and i couldn't believe it you know my mom's like where are you going driving right. into dc at 7 30 at night and right. it was you know and but i that film has put its hooks in me and i watch it all the time i, I i'm sorry no no don't apologize. i've heard our friendship don't know. <laughs> now i would now i'm looking forward to hear what you think when you see it no i'm sure i'm sure it's funny i've seen pieces of it and i yeah you know but it's just it keeps escaping me, as we said many times. Yeah. Oh, and for anyone episode. listening to us, it is the Henry. It is Henry Fourth, Part One and Two, and Henry V, uh, all in one movie with with some Merry Wives of Windsor. Yes. in it, and it's because it's he take he he kind of uh, puts together the story of John Falstaff. Yeah, Falstaff. Yeah, um, and it's supposed to be it's his favorite film. Um, and it's easy to see what. Yeah. Um, and there are all these other films, like he was making a Don Quixote that never mm -hmm. got finished. Yes. They shot for years. Yep. Um, and uh, finally, he comes back to Hollywood to do Touch of Evil, which if you want to know more about Touch of Evil, you can listen to our <laughs> podcast on it. Go into a lot of detail on it. We do. And he does the same thing, though. The movie is done. There's a cut, and he leaves. Yeah. And they finish it without him. And fortunately, Walter Murch comes in and recuts it to his yes. what we think he would have wanted. But he recruits Heston. Yeah, because Heston is the one who recruited him to be on the film, but he recruits Heston to fight against the studio about giving him final cut. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, um, and then there's you know all of the. I, but I didn't because I went through kind of mm -hmm. his Wikipedia article, which is really long. <laughs> there are well, so many Orson Welles pilots for television yeah. and French shows, and he is trying to do a sketch comedy show and try. And so many of these things have never seen the light of day. He's incredibly funny, man. He's very funny. If you uh, like, I recently discovered a a uh, talk show appearance he did as a host where he's interviewing Andy Kaufman. I saw it. Yeah, you watched, watched it, it recently, yeah. like like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's fascinating because Andy Kaufman reveres him. Yeah, and that comes through, and then Wells totally understands and appreciates Kaufman's subversive humor and where he's coming from. So it was fascinating to see two people who. Some people consider uh, often a comedic genius, and a lot of people consider Wells a, a movie genius or film genius to see them having this conversation about it. What's it's interesting about that, it is the most honest I've ever seen Andy Kaufman. Agreed. Because most of the time we see Andy Kaufman interviewed, you don't know what's happening. No, no, no. And this actually seemed like a really disarmed mm -hmm. person, so in awe of the person he's with that he was actually... Being himself. Well, listen, when you're a trickster, you can't trick the max master trickster. And you he, have to give reverence. Well, and speaking of tricksters, uh, F is for Fake oh, yes. is his essay, documentary, poetic. It's true. It's kind of a fascinating movie. Mm. You don't love it. It's not one of my favorites. Yeah. His 70s stuff doesn't really connect with me. F for Fake and then... What's the other one he did? Uh, the Odyssey, the Journey, the Long or the Odyssey. What is the Immortal Story? Oh, I don't immortal like story. Immortal yeah, Story either. Those are not ones that I. I, I think the seventies is a is like a waste of of time for ten years for him. Well, you know, at that point he's still making, spending mm -hmm. eight or nine years trying to make The Other Side of the Wind, starring John yeah. Huston, a movie that will probably will never see, and it's sad. Yeah. You know, I mean, this here's this great genius. I don't think anyone argues that. Who, for some reasons beyond his control and a lot of reasons within his control, just never gets to, you know, he peaks at 25. Yeah. Yeah. 
to me, if you watch, that's what's so tragic about Kane. When you watch Kane, that's really him. Yeah. That's really him. That's really Orson Welles' life. He is showing you his life at 25, what his life is going to be like. And I wonder how much that film haunted him every day of his life and may have influenced his behavior and his actions uh, as he went forward in life. I don't know, but it's certainly, you can make a case. I I, I can't imagine. I mean, I just yeah. can't imagine being this person who literally could do anything mm-hmm. and then was trapped by yeah. themselves and by the world. And, and even 40 years later, people are asking you about a film you did when you were 26 because yeah. nothing you've done comes close to what you did when you were 25 or whatever, 24. Yeah. That's it. No, it's it's crazy. Mm. Um, you have final thoughts on Orson Welles? Are we ending now? I don't there's know. There's so much more to talk about. Okay, well, what do you want to talk about? Well, I mean, there's there's so much with him as he progresses through it, like the weight issues that he had. The, sure. There was a lot of that that really echoed into his work. But what he also did was he gave some incredible interviews. And so I would suggest... That's a great if, point. Right, I would suggest if you're... If you are a person who loves Shakespeare, go on YouTube. You can watch numerous interviews with Orson Welles, both in black and white and color. Do you see the one with Peter O'Toole? Yes. That one is so great. That is so worth your time where he discusses Shakespeare. And this is a man, and this is why, and when you watch him, you understand why people revere him the way they do because he has such an incredible knowledge of Shakespeare, intrinsic understanding of Shakespeare, bone deep in his body. So when he talks about it, it's incredible to hear that. Of course, you can read Peter Bogdanovich uh, compiled a book of interviews he did it's with a great him, one. which yes, is fantastic. This is Orson Welles. I this think. is Orson Welles, yeah. right? Uh, my my friend Clay just sent me Young Orson, which came out in hardback a few months ago, which is another exploration of his younger years. And then uh, there's another one that just came out that I went to go see and get signed by the author of of uh, Welles's uh, conversations with a French director. I can't remember what the director is, and they're all it's all a series of lunches that were documented and compiled by this person into a book. Well, this is the thing, and people, I've heard this description of him many times, yeah. of that he was the most interesting dinner guest anyone could ever sit with. I'm sure. That his storytelling, his sense of humor, his erudition, his wit, um, sense of humor and wit are redundant, but, <laughs> and that's something Orson would never have done at the dinner table. Right. I mean, he just is endlessly fascinating. And bo- I read the Bogdanovich one, yeah. and, it's, and this is where you're just swept up in his versions of the reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's just a great storyteller. Well, people always people say to me, all people ask you every once through every once in a while in life, like if you could have dinner with five people who or four people, right. who would it be? My top two are always Orson Welles and Abraham Lincoln at the same They're table, two. because I think if anybody Lincoln wouldn't get a word in, well, well maybe, <laughs> but I also think Lincoln would destroy Welles in a in a way Welles has never been because he was. He wasn't about the braggadocio. It was about the undercutting stuff. And Lincoln would be smart enough to know how to how to uh, deprogram Wells. Plus, yeah. my guess is that Wells idolized. Yes, Lincoln. would revere him and let him speak. Yes. Yeah. Well, he claimed that Gideon Wells, who was in Lincoln's cabinet, is one of his ancestors, which oh. is not true. <laughs> it's not true. Someone checked it. Um, Can you imagine? And well, I mean, like people are used. People see him in the Muppet movie. They see him as the voice of what Om- Omnicron or Unicron. On Transformers, in Transformers yeah. movie, you know, there's a whole world to explore with Orson, uh, and you, it, the thing that's that's interesting about Orson Welles is the tragedy is never far behind the success. Always throughout his life, much like Kane, the tragedy right. is never behind, never that far behind the success, and always swallows him up. Always, yep. I mean, it's it's the shame. It's funny with for me, 
you know, there, there are these people that we talk about that were taken away too young. Yeah. You know, like James Dean or John Kennedy or sure. Bruce Lee. And, and you ask the question, what if? Orson Welles was not taken away too young. And yet in some ways you kind of are still asking the same question. Mm-hmm. Is that what could he have done? You know, what what was his what could have been his next movie? Yeah. And I, you know, and I think part of the fascination with him is we don't get it. Yeah. And for me, Steve, the thing I've started to ask myself as I revisit my feelings on Wells over the last couple of years is what if Kane had been stopped from being released? What if Kane had not right. become this the greatest film ever made? What if it had never been released? How different is the world and how different is Orson's life? Is he more vigilant to finish the things because that one thing that was great got away from him? It motivates him to finish the films instead of this great thing that he did that he'll never he was never able to live up to in his own mind, possibly the greatness of it. Uh, and you know, and maybe the Mankiewicz contribution kind of ate away at him that he he needed that, even though he denigrated Mankiewicz the right. whole process, that maybe he realized he wasn't as great in film as he was in theater because he always needed someone like he needed Houseman in theater he needed Mankiewicz in film and maybe he hated the fact that he couldn't quite do it fully on his own so there's a lot of fascinating stuff in what that I'm yeah. just thinking about and what you just said um the first thing is 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 the what if Kane never came out I mean that's honestly the story of everything else yeah you know what I mean it's like he spent is that in Citizen Kane in the long run he won the battle mm-hmm in in uh ambersons and all touch of evil and all these other ones and all these things that never came out he lost and lost and lost and lost and lost uh it's interesting also that he always put himself in situations where he would have to face these things yeah like why i mean i'm really glad he made citizen kane but why make it about william randolph first right like why not why do that you know you're going to be in trouble right um and the the other thing that i think is really interesting in what you said I think might be re- is really really true is that on Kane he had Robert Wise who would go on to be one of a great director yes. he had a fantastic cast mm-hmm. he had um Greg Toland yeah Greg Toland mm-hmm. the great cinematographer of the time mm-hmm. he had Bernard Herrmann he had all these incredibly talented people yeah. as he goes forward he doesn't actually surround him. he becomes much more of a one man band mm-hmm. and so I wonder if you're absolutely right is that he did resent the because the reality of film, and really the same was true in theater and radio, yeah. these are collaborative art forms. You can't do them on your own. Right. You know, even if you're a genius, like Orson Welles clearly is. Right. Yeah. But he did inspire slavish devotion from oh, his yeah. actors, which is incredible yeah. that these actors would wait years to finish these uh, uh, Shakespearean adaptations. And they would, like, at a moment's notice, would drop whatever they were doing to fly yep. to be flown to finish these films off in Africa and Italy and what you were saying. And it's not so, like he was madness. nice. No, that's the thing. If you read his bio, he was not a nice uh, director at times. I mean, I think, I think he had what I would describe as fairly typical alcoholic, narcissistic behavior, yes. which is he was probably unbelievably nice and warm and supportive yes. and then would rip you to pieces and destroy you. And just when you were about to leave, he would be unbelievably caring and loving yeah. to bring you back. Yeah. And then the cycle would start over. Exactly. Yeah. So final thoughts? On Orson Welles? <laughs> <laughs> Those were our final thoughts, okay. to be honest with you. Yeah. So I think that's sort of our introduction to Orson Welles. Yeah. Uh, we're going to continue this as we dig really deep into Citizen Kane. Um, as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on YouTube, on TuneIn, on 
Spotify. You can leave comments there. You can leave reviews there. You can visit our Facebook page at The Cinephiles. You can buy movies of which we didn't, we talked about a whole bunch, mm. but they're mostly not available except Touch of Evil on our website, cinephiles.net. As always, you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter. John, where can they reach you? Uh, you guys can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And I think that's it for ne- this week. We will see you next week for Citizen Kane on The Cinephiles. <laughs>